Let me encourage you to take out your Bibles. We want to have you open them up to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And let me give you a little bit of a heads up that the passage that we're going to be looking at is really, really long. So we're going to forego reading the whole thing, and I'm going to work through it with you. But here's how I would encourage you to approach this sermon. So everybody, I want you to really hear this because I think it's going to help you get a handle on it. How do you approach the message that you're about to hear? So first of all, we are going to be as if you're sitting in the pew listening to Paul preach. We're going to be seeing the master at work witnessing for Jesus Christ. Now you're going to learn, I'm going to learn five really critical parts of every time we witness to somebody for Jesus Christ. And you can witness in so many different ways. There's not one particular way that you have to witness to a spiritually lost person. But Paul is going to show us the way that he did. And it's going to be pretty remarkably consistent. Now, you might be here and would say that if you're truly honest, that you're seeking. You're not really a Christian. You're not really what you would call a believer. You're kind of checking it out. So you get to have a front row seat to what the gospel message really is from the Apostle Paul himself. So I want you to open up to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, and as we look at this very lengthy passage that goes all the way from verses 13 to 41, I want you to recall some background. So this is not throwaway information. This is not a part of the message that you just sort of slumber your way through. This is actually pretty important. So I want you to remember that the gospel is now going into the Roman Empire. And it's going into the Roman Empire through the missionary team of Paul and Barnabas, now you might be surprised, and John Mark, who goes by Mark. And they had left Paphos. Look at your Bible, verses 13. They had left Paphos of Cyprus. That's an island. That's where Barnabas was from. And they sailed north. And then when they hit really what is Asia Minor, they went eight miles inland to the city of Perga, which was in the low coast region of Pamphylia, which I know none of these names are familiar, but it's modern Turkey, the country of Turkey today. So that's where they are. They are in what we call Turkey today. It's Pamphylia. It is the city of Perga. It is eight miles in, that's going to be important, to the coast. Now, unexpectedly, watch what happens. Part of their team, John Mark, deserts them. He leaves abruptly. And he heads back to Jerusalem, and we're not really told why. The Bible doesn't really give us a reason for why John Mark leaves. Many have speculated. Here's three of them, speculations. He was homesick for his mom. That is how he was very close, it seems, with his mom. He was afraid of the attacks that he knew was going to come. Or the more likely possibility that at least most commentators agree with, that tension with the Apostle Paul was ramping up because Paul was determined 
to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Whatever the reason is, we don't really know, but we are going to find out in the next several weeks. It's going to have a great impact on Paul and Barnabas' relationship in just a little while. We've got biblical experts who believe that while they were there, Barnabas and Paul, in, these, in this low coastal region where it's very hot, very humid, that Paul got sick. A lot of people believe he got malaria. And he and Barnabas then sought the pure, cooler climate of Antioch in Galatia. There's a lot of cities of Antioch. We already looked at one where the church, the Gentile church began. This Antioch is not that Antioch. This is the Antioch that is in Galatia, Antioch of Pisidia. It's in the province of Galatia. It's in the highlands of modern Turkey. It's 3,600 feet above sea level. So Paul and Barnabas, many believe, were trying to gain the more arid, cool, drier climate because he was sick, possibly, even possibly likely with malaria. But for Paul and Barnabas to actually get to Antioch and Pisidia, they had to cross the Taurus mountain range, and they had to go through all of these flood-prone roads, and it's inhabited by a network of thieves. It was incredibly dangerous. Now listen to this. Malaria often, we know this to be true, attacks the eyes. Whatever the ailment Paul had, we know that when he arrived to Antioch in Galatia, he was sick. For he later would write to the church in Galatia, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, now look at the hint, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So, of course, a lot of experts believe, and I would agree, that likely the malaria, if that's what it was, was attacking his vision. They got to Antioch, Barnabas and Paul. And he and Barnabas, look at verse 14, on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down after the reading from the law and the prophets. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now let me take you into the synagogue. Now what I'm doing right now, friends, listen, all I'm doing right now is I'm getting you ready to receive five aspects of biblical witnessing that we're going to learn from Paul in this first and lengthiest sermon that the Bible is ever going to record from him. So I'm going to take you into the synagogue where Paul is about to preach this sermon. The synagogue was the center of Jewish community. It was the house of prayer, the house of study. Every synagogue all over the world was set up similarly. It didn't matter if you were one in one in Jerusalem, and there were a lot of them, or if you're here in the province of Galatia. It was facing the same direction. It was set up internally the same direction. But in addition to the Jewish worshipers, God-fearing Gentiles, these aren't believers, but they're God-fearing, they would gather to worship as well, and they would meet on Saturdays. And they would come to the meeting when the shofar blew. That was like a trumpet. Kind of functioned like church bells used to even 20 to 50 years ago. 
Church bells were usually the signal, be in church, come to church. The service is about to begin. The service would open with a reading, look at verse 15, from the law and the prophets. And the, the synagogue ruler would be the one that selected that reading. And then members of the congregation would be invited to read these passages, kind of what we do in here as well. And then the Shema, the Shema is Deuteronomy 6, and then a portion of Deuteronomy 11 would be recited, and then prayers, I'm giving you the order of service, it was the same the world over, and then the sermon, and then the closing blessing. But just before the sermon, you're all going to love this, there was an intermission, and guess what they did during the intermission? Greeting. Oh, you just can't get away from it. That's when they would actually find one another and catch up on the latest news with one another. And then during that greeting time, the synagogue ruler either personally or would send a message to a person that he was about to invite to preach. Now listen, I want you to hear this. Just, it's probably likely, I think, why Paul said to Timothy, to be ready at all times to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. He learned this in the synagogue. It was up to the ruler of the synagogue to invite who he wanted to come and deliver the sermon. You had to be ready. Well, Paul was invited, verse 16. He stood up and he motioned with his hand. That's what we have to do when we were greeting. Because a lot of you are with your backs to us. So we have to kind of start to motion. I speak into the microphone. That's what Paul was doing. He's motioning with his hand. Take your seats. Go ahead and be seated. And he begins his sermon this way. Verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now some of you have very adroitly noticed that I often say listen. Or give me your attention. That's a, a, I actually learned that from Charles Stanley 25 years ago. But it's a very good way of calling people to the authority of God's word. Open your ears, open your mind. God's word is about to be preached. This is very important. So the people sat and Paul gave a sermon and I want you to look at verse 26. He could have easily titled it this, the message of this salvation. All right, now I don't know if you found that interesting. I hope you did. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a background to get you ready for five parts of this sermon that really make up Paul's biblical gospel witnessing. Now I want you to hear something. This is super important because you know what? Most of you are never going to be preachers. Not the kind that stand up here. This is not a message for preachers only. This is a message for every Christian. Here's how you want to witness of Jesus. So if I were you, I would really encourage you, take notes. This is one of those really critical sermons I'm going to tell you. You really need to be taking notes. You need to be writing these down. And if you don't have something to write with, you know your phone usually has a note-taking app. But if you don't have anything to write on, maybe take pictures of the slides. Whatever you want to do. But I really encourage you to really learn this because this is directly transferable to how you and I witness to spiritually dead people. Here's the first point. It's the story of salvation. Look at verse 17 with me, please. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Now, what do you get out of that? 
Well, as you're going to keep reading, and we'll keep reading as we go through this, you're going to find that God is the subject of nearly every verb that Paul chooses in the entire sermon. Now, I don't know how much you know about grammatical uh, sentence construction, but verbs, in this case, God is the subject of the verb. In other words, it's all about God. This is an extremely God-centered sermon, as you're going to see as we work through this. You're witnessing, when you talk to spiritually lost people... You must be God-centered. If you want power and you're witnessing, you're going to see five elements that really need to be in it. The first one, this story is all about God. It's all about God. In fact, 16 times, it's actually more than 16 times, in this passage, Paul emphasizes that God is the central actor in all of history. If you're talking to somebody that's not a Christian, you need to be showing them. You need to be helping them understand. God is the story of your life. God is working behind the scenes. God chose Israel. God made them great. God delivered them from Egypt, so on and so on. It's all about God. So Paul is witnessing to this spiritually lost congregation of Jewish and Gentile people, and he's beginning with the story of God in salvation. Now, there's something super deeply woven into every single person's heart that wants to be in control. Now, I would just encourage you, you, you do what you want, but I'm just going to encourage you, don't deny that. It's inescapable. It's part of our fallen nature. You and I have a quest for the throne throughout the day. And most of us are Christians in this room, I think. We are new creations, and we still want the throne. Can you imagine, then, someone who is of an old creation before Christ, not a believer. Their heart is oriented to be in control. They want to be in control, even over their own salvation. It might be the belief that you can merit or that you can earn or that you can work or that you can deserve God's salvation. It might be the belief that you have the ability to freely choose God without any help whatsoever from him. Whatever it is, there needs to remain some vestige of control in every single person. Nothing is more helpless, nothing is more terrifying than the absolute realization that you cannot save yourself. Friends, you know what that does to the soul? You probably do, because if you're, if you're a Christian, this used to be you, whether you could formulate it into words or not. This used to be you. You had to come to the realization that you cannot save yourself. If you do not get to that realization, you cannot be a believer. You must be poor in spirit, the Beatitude said. It's a very helpless, terrifying realization. I am helpless before the Lord. 
Yet it's the place that everyone must get to if they are to be saved. For they are in a radically desperate, a thoroughly helpless situation. And Ephesians begins to bring out this God who is the author of the story of salvation. Here's what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. I mean, this is incredibly helpless to realize God already chose you before he created this earth. Paul would write right after that in Ephesians. It's in him that we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So do you want to know who God chooses? You ready? I'm going to, I'm going to settle this for you in one sentence. You want to know who God chooses? Everyone that he wills. I can't be more clear. That's literally what the Bible says. And Jesus said it even more clearly in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you. So if there's any remnant in any person in this room or watching this online that you think you're in control, you can choose God or leave him, that there is an ability within you to even please God and save yourself even just a little bit, listen, these verses kill it. The story of salvation is authored by God. In fact, the first sin in human history was built on the lie that you can save yourself. That's what the devil was doing with Eve. You can bring yourself purpose, yourself happiness and satisfaction. You don't need God for any of this. And that's been the most enduring lie of the devil since. And Paul is confronting a congregation, a congregation of Jewish people who felt entitled do you know that it was ingrained into the mind of a Jewish person that they were born righteous, right with God? They were inherently righteous. And that the more that they loved and studied and lived out the Torah, the word of God, the written word of God and the oral law of God, then God's righteousness came in even greater measure to them. But Paul is confronting them, no, you cannot. You are a spiritually lost congregation. And you need to realize that God has so sovereignly orchestrated all things. To bring you salvation. That's the first point. Now, when you're witnessing to somebody, you want to make God the center of what you're talking about. It's God's story, chiefly. He's the one working behind the scenes. And as here, he's the one that delivered Israel. He's the one that chose them. He's the one that brought them through the wilderness. He's the one that defeated the tribes of Canaan. It's all about God. And number two, it's the grace of salvation. Now it's the grace of salvation. You see, Israel, friends, listen, Israel was not a picture of a faithful people. Theirs is a tale of a downward spiral into sin. 
Look at verse 18. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. See, this is not a history lesson. What Paul is doing is emphasizing, yes, God chose you, but you did everything to deserve his wrath. Everything to deserve his wrath. You know, my daughter and I are reading through the book of 1 Kings together. We read throughout the week, and then we try to go out on a father-daughter date on Thursday evenings. And we get together, and we talk through what we're reading. And man, it is so terribly sad to see Israel spiraling downward into depravity through the book of 1 Kings. You read of wicked kings like Omri, who did more evil than all who were before him. And then his son comes along, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It's like they're descending down into depravity, and that, in fact, is what they were doing. So friends, let's really get clear reasoning into our minds for a moment. The grace of God restrains sin. Can everybody think that in your mind? The grace of God restrains sin. But not you and not me. None of us are better than any other of these kings. If not for the grace of God, friends, do you know that you would spiral down into depravity? Now, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of Christians that I talk to that don't believe that. So let me press that into your hearts a little deeper. If it was not for the grace of God that is turning you away from sin and turning you towards Christ, your only direction that you would be going is deeper and deeper and deeper into sin and godlessness. And all we need to do is look in the rearview mirror of our lives, and we will see that we were no different than Israel before God saved any of us. Every lost sinner, every lost sinner is a proud, stubborn rebel striving for freedom from, from their creator. And Paul's heart must have soared when he later wrote in Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So you're witnessing to somebody, and you're, you're witnessing like Paul is preaching, and you're giving the story of God and salvation, how God works and how God chooses and how God moves people to be able to put their faith in him. They respond. You see, there's a responsibility. God must work, and then the person can respond. And then he begins, Paul does, to be able to, de to detail Israel going around and around and deeper and deeper into depression. And God is still going to love them. God is still going to be their God. God is still going to be delivering them. Why? Because God is gracious. Now let me just pause one more moment. Please, please, please think on this. Where would you be without God's grace? Where would you be without God's grace? 
Friends, if it was me in the pew listening to that, I think my heart would begin even right now going, God, thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. I know where I would be without your grace. I would be as bad as any of them, for depravity awaits the graceless. But thank God that his grace has poured out on me, and thank God that his grace has poured out on you. And then Paul moves to number three, the means of salvation. So we've seen the story of salvation. We've seen the grace of salvation. Now we're seeing the means of salvation. And I want you to look with me in verse 17. I want you to start there with me. And I want you to notice something together with me. That Paul started his sermon with Israel in Egypt. And their deliverance. And then their 40 years of wandering, verse 18. And then God's power in bringing them into the promised land, verse 19. And then he took the congregation through the period of the judges of Israel, verse 20. And then their first king, verse 21. And then King David, whom God said was a man after my heart, verse 22. Now everybody look at me for a moment. You ever wondered what it means to be a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart? Well, Luke isn't going to leave you guessing. The Bible will always answer its own mysteries. Look at the rest of that verse. Here's what it is to be a man after God's own heart. You do all God's will. So if you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, it's truly one who will, by his grace, do all of his will. And then look what happens in verse 23. Paul skips centuries of history. There are hundreds of years. There's like eight to nine hundred years between David and you get to John the Baptist. He's going in one direction, and that one direction is Jesus. So I want to help you understand that, and I'm about to do a wedding coming up next weekend. I'm really excited about it. And I've done a lot of weddings. Pastor Matthew's done a lot of weddings. I haven't yet seen, except for one time, an exception to this. Here comes the bride. Ordinarily, if her father is still alive and if he shows up to the wedding, I've done weddings where the father hasn't shown up, he's escorting her down the aisle. And here's what I've noticed all but one time, and that one time was a young lady that I dearly love who I believe is a diva and was looking at, I think she was doing the queen's wave to everybody. But everybody else comes down the aisle, every bride. Now think of this, you've been to weddings and you're in your own wedding probably. Brides come down the aisle and their eyes are one direction. Their eyes are fixed on the groom. They don't deviate to the right, and they don't deviate to the left. They've got one goal, they've got one trajectory, they've got one place they're going to go. They want to go more than any other, and that is to the side of their beloved whom they're about to marry. Now, friends, that's what Paul's doing. Can you not feel it? That's what Paul's doing in this sermon. He's got eyes for one person and one person only, Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire Old Testament is coming down the aisle, and it's moving in one direction to get to Jesus. And for good reason, because look what Acts 4, 12 says. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is the testimony of Jesus himself in John 14. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. Now, friends, you can bank on it. The entire Old Testament has one place it's heading to, and that is to the Son of God named Jesus. And the entire New Testament has one person that they are looking back to, and it is the Son of God named Jesus. When you are witnessing to a spiritually lost friend, you are going in one direction with that person. You are taking that person to Jesus, and you are bringing that Jesus to that person. All the power in the gospel witnessing centers on the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Amen? Look what it says in verse 28 of this passage. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. They laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. If you are a witness for Jesus, you are one of his witnesses and I want you to look and see how much of this sermon look at your Bibles look at verses 30 through verse 37 the entire passage is on the resurrected risen Christ friends if you're not talking about the resurrection of Jesus if you're not talking about Jesus who was crucified and raised you will not have power in your witnessing it is the resurrection that brings that power he is alive and the living Savior can give new life to any sinner who's going to come to him no matter how bad their life was that's the gospel that's the good news that Paul said they were charged to bring to that congregation verse 32 the means of salvation is Jesus the crucified and risen Savior number four I hope you're taking notes the appeal of salvation verse 38 let it be known to you therefore brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses now let me tell you what the law of Moses was for the law of Moses was beautiful David loved it he said it's sweeter than honey more precious than gold do you know why he said that because not only does the law of Moses reveal the holy perfect loving character of God it exposes the sin in our hearts The law of Moses takes you captive to your sin. And having taken you captive, it works, Galatians 2, like a schoolmaster that walks you to your school so that you can learn from the teacher who is Jesus. The law's job is to bind you up showing you God's perfection, exposing your sinfulness, driving you to poverty of spirit, to humility, to cry out for God's help. And then it delivers you to Jesus who died on your behalf, who willingly took your sins upon him and gave you his righteousness so that you could live. It is so much better than the law of Moses. 
And the whole sermon led to this appeal, this invitation, that through this man, they can be saved. Friends, now listen, just think for a moment, who is in your life that you know is not a believer and you so want them to become saved? Whose face just pulled into your mind? Well, that's the person you're being sent to, I would imagine. And when you go there, you want to be able to talk about the story of salvation, how God is sovereign over all of it. And you want to talk about the grace of salvation. And you want to be able to get to the means of salvation. But you've got to get to the appeal. And that's where cowardly people stop. You've got to get to the invitation. Do you want life? Do you want to know this Jesus? I'll show you how you can know him. Just listen to what I explain. That's what you need to say to people. You see, forgiveness of sins and freedom from guilt, from shame, from your past, from God's judgment. That's the gift of life that Jesus gives to any, look what it says, who believes. This is the heart of witnessing. You invite people to know the love of God. But perhaps the most difficult part of witnessing to a lost sinner is to lovingly warn them not to reject the offer of salvation. And that's the fifth and final point in Paul's sermon. Look what he says. This is the warning in rejecting salvation. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Friends, unbelief is rejection. Unbelief is rejection. And when we witness, we are calling that person that we love to believe that God loves them and wants to save them. So he sent his son Jesus to accomplish their salvation. Jesus took upon himself their judgment. Jesus took upon himself their penalty that they deserve. Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God that should have been on you and it should have been on me for our sins. He died on that cross and by God's power was raised to life. And he's the first of many who are going to be raised and given new life and that life is the freedom friends here's what it is to live without guilt to live without shame don't you want that for people to live with purpose to live with hope and joy and a future and a rest but you must believe you've got to have faith you see there must be a trust in Jesus as your savior now listen and a submission to him as your lord don't demarcate those. those don't, don't pull those two apart. You've got to be able to come to Jesus trusting that he is your Savior and willing to submit to him as your Lord. That's salvation. That's biblical salvation. But if you reject him, you reject any possibility of being saved. You, be, you reject any way of being forgiven of your sins. And the eternal future of every unbeliever is horribly, listen, but deservedly separation from God in hell. Nobody is ever going to go to hell unjustly. And we've got the job, Christian, of showing people just how great this salvation is. Do you see in this sermon that history is really his story, God's story of saving lost sinners? And is your heart captured by his incredible grace that he displayed 
in salvation? Do you understand more clearly that there is only one means of salvation? Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And will you passionately appeal to spiritually lost sinners and to believe in Jesus for their forgiveness? And finally, are you emboldened to lovingly warn them not to reject the only way they could be saved? All right, so what do you do with this? What do you do with this? Number one, God so put his word on the Apostle Paul that he could bring scripture into the conversation even when he wasn't prepared to preach that day. Are you and I prepared? Do you love the word of God? Do you know the word of God? Are you studying and proving yourself faithful, wielding the word of God, which is the word of life. When it lives in you, it will come out of you. And when it comes out of you to people who desperately need salvation, it's going to come out in a way that's going to look likely similar to Paul's sermon because you're going to do nothing but talk about God. And because you've received grace in such measure, you're going to speak of grace in such measure. And you're going to be so thoroughly persuaded that if there was any other way but through the burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that God could have saved us, he would have done it. There is no other way, and that will give you persuasive words. So persuasive that you will appeal and you will invite them. Put your faith in Jesus who loves you and you will be saved. But you will not stop there because you will be willing to warn them what will happen if they reject that. This is the first sermon in the Bible that Paul is recorded to preach. And it's the most amazing sermon. And it just explained to us how we witness to people who are desperately in need of salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, as we are about to sing, Lord, as we are about to sing about Jew and Gentile coming into Jerusalem and singing on the mountain of God, Lord, as our hearts are going to be soaring with this song, Father, I pray that we will not forget the words of Paul. Lord, that this sermon will just resonate and echo beyond tonight. Father, that we will leave here emboldened. That we will leave here a little more familiar with how to share the message of Jesus. Lord, that all of history is your story. Father, that you are the God of grace and you willingly save sinners. And you do it through the means of your son who loves us, Lord, and gave his life for us and was raised out of that grave, the first of many. And Lord, embolden us and persuade us that this is the message that we can give to those faces that popped into our minds. And Lord, let us be willing, if we need, to warn them lovingly of what can happen and what will happen if they reject. Lord, we are sent 
to the end of the earth to be your witnesses. But Lord, we need to start right where we are. Let that begin tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.